Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Father Fisher. Thank you all very much. Thank you for coming this evening. For some of you, thanks for coming back for a second round of the Black Plague. So last week, we covered the Black Plague, how it turned the world upside down, brought havoc to society and government, economics, and popular culture. Tonight, I want to share with you what kept the world and humanity together in the midst of all those problems. That was the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith. How in the middle of such a dark chapter in history, it was the Catholic Church that provided faith, hope, love, and light. Some of the stories I'll share with you may surprise you because some of these stories are not often told in popular history books, movies, or TV shows in the plague because quite often you only hear one side of the story, but as you just heard, tonight I'm here perhaps to tell the other side of the story. Every coin has two sides. Tonight I can speak to defend the Catholic Church and some of the things you've heard about the Catholic Church during the Black Plague. Uh, some people defend the Church through apologetics. They'll pull out the Bible and go line for line. Others do it through philosophy. My great love is history. And there are many times, I shared with you last time, that I've been on an airplane or I've been at a, a Nationals baseball game or I've been out at a restaurant and someone will see me with my collar and begin to ask questions about the Catholic Church. And I always love to share with them the defense of how beautiful and real our Catholic faith is. And yes, you can use scripture. Yes, you can use the lives of the saints. Yes, you can use philosophy. But yes, you can also use church history. So I encourage you, maybe tonight, if there's something that really clicks or God somehow illuminates uh, something I've said today, a story I've told, a, a saint you've discovered tonight, maybe that's an invitation by God for you too to look at church history with new enthusiasm and to use it as a gift that you could use to help share the Catholic faith with others. We are all called to be apostles, no matter who we are or our vocation in the church. We're all called to grow in holiness and to sanctify the world as well. So without further ado, let's go back to the 13th century, the 1300s. From 1346 to 1353, the bubonic plague, known as the Black Death, spread over all of Europe with incredible speed. It killed an estimated 100 to 200 million people. Historians estimate that would be 30 to 50 percent of the population of Europe. Or more precisely, think of it this way, one out of every two or three people. Just imagine that. Imagine going through the room tonight every third person, or at Sunday Mass looking down the pew every third person, to know that within a few days they would be gone. Sadly, medieval medicine was limited and did not comprehend the science of bacteria or the spread of germs. Sadly, for those who became infected, death came in just a few days. The plague was brought from Europe, from, to Europe from Asia through infected fleas. These fleas attached themselves to a large rat population, and these rats thrived in crowded living conditions and poor sanitation throughout European cities and villages. In turn, infected humans spread the plague through contact with other humans. When the plague hit, the upper class sought their own protection, often leaving the poor and lower class to fend for themselves. In fact, with the gigantic loss of so many members of the lower class, and therefore the labor force, the feudal system came to the verge of collapse, and in some areas it led to public protests and even revolution. Some wondered if the world was coming to an end or if this was a punishment from God. Society was collapsing morally, politically, and economically, and these sudden changes caused new questions and new attitudes in culture many of which planted the seeds that would later bear fruit in the Renaissance, the French Revolution, European nationalism, and the Protestant Reformation or Revolution. So, why are we here tonight for more of the plague? Well, sadly, some historians make a claim that the plague led to a high rate of atheism in Europe. 
that for those who survived the plague, the experience of constant death and suffering led them to reject faith in God and to reject the Catholic faith. If God and the church could not stop the plague, there must not be a God, right? That's what some books will tell you. Sadly, some historians also make a claim that the Pope and the clergy of the Catholic Church did absolutely nothing to help victims of the plague. Some books or TV shows claim the Pope lived in luxury and was unconcerned about his suffering flock, almost like Nero playing the violin as the city of Rome went up in flames. Some books of the plague also claim the Catholic clergy refused to help the sick or tried and said to profit off the sick by selling the sacraments. Hey, why go to the clergy if they're not going to help you or if they're going to charge you a high price? But tonight, we're here to ask an important question. What was the effect on the plague on the life and the work of the Catholic Church? How did the Church respond to the pastoral needs of all of Europe when it was in crisis? How did the Pope and the clergy deal with this? Did they really run away or did they roll up their sleeves and go to work? These are questions to look at this evening. And hopefully the information I share with you this evening can help you learn about this chapter in Catholic Church history and in turn help you to answer questions people may ask you. Let me be clear, someone who loves history, I begin by saying the Catholic Church is very human and filled with sinners. Even popes and clergy sometimes don't live up to the universal call to holiness. Be assured, I will tell you some very interesting stories tonight about the popes and the clergy. Put your seatbelts on. <laughs> However, I want to also remind you as someone who loves history that the Catholic Church is not just human, it's also very divine. It was founded by Jesus Christ and given the Holy Spirit and told that not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Tonight I want to speak to you about the other side of the coin that many historians don't speak about. For it really asks an awkward question. How could an institution that is so human with such flawed people not only survive the plague, but at the same time be the source of faith, hope, and love to a world that is in constant death and sadness? How did society and government collapse and yet the church continued faithfully to do its work? The answer, this institution is no mere institution. The church was founded by Jesus Christ and given a mission, a divine work to do. Tonight, I want to speak about four topics. First, the rise of atheism during the Black Plague, the state of the papacy, the state of the clergy, and lastly, the state of the lay faithful. So our four topics tonight, the rise of atheism during the plague, the state of the papacy during the plague, the state of the clergy during the plague, and the state of the lay faithful. That should cover our topic pretty well tonight. So first, did the plague lead to a rise in atheism? The answer, no. Instead, it led to greater faith and piety. In crisis, where do people go? Most often, they turn to God. Remember that the life, identity, and culture of Europe in the 1300s was completely interwoven with the Catholic Church, so much so that Europe in that day was called Christendom. The Black Plague had a culture that was not simply under the influence of the church, but actually committed to living the Catholic faith. In the midst of the plague and its subsequent social and economic crisis, men and women of both the upper class and lower class turned to the Catholic Church for assistance. Demands were made on the church with a speed and volume that could overwhelm any institution, let alone one in the Middle Ages. Remember, this was also a time before the Red Cross, before the United Nations, the National Guard, UNICEF, or any international relief organization. This was also a time before neighborhood hospitals, a world of social workers and psychologists. Any relief program came from the Catholic Church, local parishes, convents, and monasteries. Those who left records during the plague confirm that people brought their sick and dying to the Catholic Church, especially the poor who had no place to go. As society and government collapsed and civil leaders fled from their posts, people turned to the church for the sacraments, for counsel, for charity, mercy, and protection. This confidence to go to the church reveals their faith in the Catholic Church, 
the Catholic Church would not turn them away. In fact, as we will see as we go on tonight, it was indeed the Catholic Church that helped keep society from total collapse. Our second topic, the state of the papacy during the Black Plague. To be honest, the 1300s was the worst time for the Catholic Church to deal with an epic world crisis. Of course, there's never a good time for an epic world crisis, is there? Really. No one likes to see the world collapse, but especially in the 1300s. The plague came at one of the lowest periods of papal prestige and leadership in the entire history of the church. When the Black Plague hit Europe in the fall of 1347, the Pope was not in Rome. The Pope was living in France. In fact, we call this period the Babylonian captivity or the Avion papacy. Sadly, internal debates among the popes, the cardinals, and the bishops would soon lead to the rise of others claiming to lead the church. We call this the Western Schism, or the time of anti-popes. The 1300s was not an easy time for the papacy. But when the plague hit in 1347, the greatest obstacle to the papacy was the pope himself. His name was Pope Clement VI. So, why was the pope living in France? Let me rewind for just a moment. Let's go back to 1305, just before the plague hit. Following a deadlock among the cardinals voting in the conclave in Rome, a French cardinal's elected pope and took the name Clement V. Although he was now the bishop of Rome, he did not want to live in Rome, a city at that time filled with crime and regular invading armies from neighboring kingdoms. Remember, at this time, Italy was not a unified nation as it is today, but rather a group of small states or kingdoms that really couldn't defend themselves very well. So Pope Clement V decided to move the papal court and residence back to his native France and settled in Avion. If you're going to live in exile from Rome, he had good taste. Avion's a nice place to be. Here are a string of seven popes who lead the church from 1309 until 1377. In addition, during this time, almost all the cardinals and papal advisors were chosen by the French pope for among the local French clergy. Therefore, it will not surprise you that the new majority of French cardinals being named this time were all from France and all had great friendships with the French popes. This was a good time to be a French cleric or bishop. Sadly, the national loyalty of the French popes and French cardinals did not sit well with the English who had been at war with the French for several decades, nor did it sit well with the people of Rome, who desperately wanted their bishop to come home and go back to work. On May 7, 1342, four years before the plague hit Europe, the fourth Avion Pope was elected, Cardinal Pierre Roger, who took the name Clement VI. Clement VI was born into a noble French family. He had been a Benedictine abbot, a bishop, then the Cardinal Archbishop Rouen. He was so well-known and respected among all the French noble families, his family's connections actually helped him to be named as the Chancellor of all of France, reporting only to the King of France and a member of the royal court while he was still a cardinal. Let us say that this cardinal knew more than just his prayers. Sadly, Pope Clement VI is one of the popes who was always brought up in history as an example of a bad pope, or how a pope should not act. He lived as if he was a king. Of course, that was his royal blood, wasn't it? From a leading French family. He was well known for his lavish parties as a pope. He had the nicest robes and liked only the finest French wines in the course. In fact, his first action taken as pope was to enlarge the papal palace in Avion to, in order to accommodate bigger papal banquets that he already planned. His second action as pope was to purchase local vineyards to ensure the papal court had enough good French red wine. As an aside to history, one of those vineyards still produces a red wine entitled the Chateau des Popes, which, if you look at it, has a white label with a gold tiara and two papal keys crossed. Very proud to know that they are still in allegiance with the pope, right? Pope Clement VI several times was questioned by people for this regal way of life as the leader of the Catholic Church. And his famous answer is often quoted, don't be upset at me because my, predece my, six, my predecessors did not know how to live as a true pope. <laughs> his reputation for luxury was so bad that several centuries later in 1562, 
when the French Puritan Huguenots arose to power, they marched to his tomb in the Benton Abbey of Les Chaises Dieu, opened his tomb, and burned his bones. Now, I told you I'd have good stories tonight, right? I told you, put your seatbelts on, right? They even burned his bones centuries later. I guess he did not leave a good example to anyone who wanted to follow the example of Christ. So historians tell the truth and they point to Pope Clement VI as a man who liked to live as a king rather than a pope. He was indeed not living the lifestyle of Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa. He was very human and flawed. Case closed. However, doesn't God always work through sinners? King David or St. Peter? To his credit, Pope Clement VI, like other bad popes, never changed the teachings of the church, never changed the sacraments, or even the scriptures. No one can point to him and say that he was the norm of popes. In fact, he's shocking because he is the exception of how popes live. But historians often fail to tell you there's another side of the coin when we talk about Pope Clement VI. History is wrong to paint Clement VI as being unmoved by the sufferings he witnessed in Avion when the Black Plague hit there in 1348. In Avion, the plague killed half the townspeople, half the clergy, and are you ready for this? Half the College of Cardinals, most of which were French living at the papal court. Clement VI quickly became very sober and grasping the spiritual and material impact of the plague on God's people, he acted quickly. First, despite recommendations by his staff to flee to a safer place like other princes or kings, Pope Clement VI stayed his residence to oversee the work of the church and its care for the sick. He personally diverted papal funds from his own projects to providing food and medicine for the dying and purchased cemeteries for the dead. When all the cemeteries of Evian were filled up and bodies were being piled in the streets, Pope Clement VI took the extraordinary action of consecrating the Rione River flowing through the city as a burial place and declared it holy ground worthy of Christian burial. He also designated parishes overlooking the river each day to celebrate masses for the dead who have been interred in local cemeteries and in the river itself. Secondly, Pope Clement VI also spent papal funds on medical care and research. In fact, he paid for doctors, pharmacists, astronomers, and agricultural experts to come to plague-ridden areas throughout Europe and to assist the church in relief programs. His personal physician, Guillaume de Chalais, did months of medical research and published one of the only scientific books written on the plague during the plague. In fact, this doctor was one of the first doctors to explain the difference between bubonic and pneumonic plague. Third, Clement VI continued to hold meetings with bishops who came to the papal court in Avion. Even though he risked infection from bishops traveling around the world from plague-ridden dioceses to come and to seek his advice. These official meetings gave the Pope an opportunity to get a pulse on the church throughout the world. One example was the visit of Thomas Brendewine, who was nominated by the leaders of England to take the role of the Archbishop of Canterbury, at that time the leader of the Catholic Church in England. Brandewine traveled several weeks from England to Avion through many plague-ridden cities in both England and France. The Pope met with him, approved him for the position, and then consulted him on the state of affairs in England. And then lastly, personally consecrated him a bishop in the papal chapel at Avion. Our bishop Brandewine returned to England and died of the plague a few weeks later, having never taken possession of his archdiocese. His successor, John de Uford, did even worse. He was nominated quickly as the next archbishop of Canterbury, but died of the plague before he could even be consecrated a bishop or come to Avion to meet the Pope. <coughs> Fourth, Pope Clement VI issued several papal bulls condemning unauthorized religious groups or associations who acted in contempt of the church at this time. Some of these groups were fanatics who called for a purge in society of people who were sinners or who they thought were spreading the plague. Others claimed to have secret knowledge that the world was ending or revelation of new ways of salvation without having to go to church or be exposed to public areas were one group who advocated ordaining oneself at home to make sure the sacraments could be received without dangerously going out in public. Such heretical groups were also condemned by civil leaders, for they caused massive panic and riots in major cities. Lastly, during the height of the plague, rumors circulated that Jewish people had 
caused the plague in Europe by poisoning wells and drinking water. As a result, some cities expelled Jewish families or confiscated their property. Sadly, anti-Semitic mobs even killed innocent Jewish families. In 1348, Pope Clement VI responded by issuing two papal bulls, one on July 6th and one on September 26th. These bulls condemned all violence against the Jewish people and declared that those who believed the Jews were responsible for the plague were, quote, seduced by that liar, the devil, unquote. Pope Clement VI urged Catholic clergy to take action to protect the Jewish people and warned that anyone doing harm to the Jews on account of the plague would be excommunicated. He even personally welcomed Jewish refugees to Avian who fled from violence in other cities. History will remember Pope Clement VI for indeed his love of luxury and fine wine. However, we cannot forget that God nevertheless worked through this flawed man and helped to keep the church together and continue its divine mission. Third topic, the state of the clergy during the Black Plague. Let us remember that in the 1300s, Europe was Catholic. In fact, every village square was built around one thing, a Catholic church. If you ever travel through Europe, look at the main plaza, and what do you see? A Catholic church. Every major city's cultural life revolved around what? The cathedral. Large abbeys in the countryside were staffed by well-educated canons and monks. Orders of religious, such as the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Mercedarians, and the Carmelites, traveled town to town preaching among the poor. Large convents full of nuns provided education and works of charity to the poor. Large Marian shrines and tombs of saints inspired pilgrimages among the faithful who could not go all the way to Rome or Jerusalem. In the 1300s, the number of priests and religious was large, and they enjoyed a good reputation throughout Europe. Sadly, when the plague hit Europe, it killed one-third to one-half of the population. However, remember this, due to their close work with the sick and the poor, civil records of the day testify that the clergy had even higher rates of mortality. Because priests and nuns were faithful to their vocations, most died quickly in the plague. Sadly, the plague had now brought another problem to Europe. There was a severe shortage of priests. In many parts of Europe, people demanded more priests, especially as friends and family were dying. To meet the immediate need, and with good intention, many bishops and abbots began accepting candidates for ordination on an express program. Candidates did not have the normal long period of time to study theology, pray, or learn complete pastoral wisdom. Thus, as the plague quickly claimed the lives of any clergy, the replacements were often not fully prepared. And many bishops and abbots lamented the sharp decline in the quality of candidates, although they were put right to work. However, there is more to history. We must give this replacement clergy its due. Death records in Europe tell us that the two professions suffered most at this time were medical doctors and Catholic priests, not just at the onset of the plague, but throughout the entire time period of the Black Plague in Europe. Even the replacement clergy were sometimes teased or poked fun at by historians. If you look at civil records, we'll tell you. Many of them rolled up their sleeves and laid down their lives for the people of their parishes. The higher death rate of clergy during the plague testifies that these were indeed holy men, faithful to their vows, and could be found serving their people, especially the sick, the poor, and the dying. Despite obvious risks, they were there in homes and hospitals. They were there for confessions, last rites, mass, and works of charity. Sadly, many popular books, TV shows, and movies, at this time the Catholic Church, religious, and bishops are seen or portrayed as forsaking their people. Now, I'm sure some did. We're talking about the entire church. We're talking about a church that is very human. However, look at the facts and the death records that testify to the heroic numbers of priests and religious who died. In fact, let me cite for you some examples of what happened to the clergy during the time of the Black Plague. The Dominican Monastery of Montpelier in France served as a church and a hospital for the local community. Only seven out of 140 Dominican friars survived the first year of the plague in 1347. Seven out of 140 Dominican friars survived. 50% of the local clergy in Avignon, France, died of the plague. Many of these died tending those who were on the streets, dying, 
who had no one else to care for them. In 1348, the first year of the plague, Vatican archives state that 25 archbishops and 207 bishops died in Europe during the first year of the plague. Henry Neaton, an English writer while visiting the French port of Marseille, watched a large crowd of parishioners perform a mass burial of Catholic clergy who had died serving plague victims. Remember, all the priests were being buried at the same time because they'd all died in the recent outbreak of the plague. He wrote in his letter, and I quote, not one of the 150 Franciscans could survive to tell their story, unquote. Can you imagine a funeral procession for 150 Franciscan friars among the people that knew that they died serving their family and friends? Ralph of Shrewsbury, the Bishop of Bath in Wales and England, sent an open letter to the priests of his diocese thanking them for their dedicated service. In the letter, he commanded that the clergy continue to go to the house of every person dying of the plague to bring them Holy Communion and to hear their confessions. However, the bishop added in his letter that when there were situations of too many people dying at one time to visit everybody individually in your parish, then families should have their sick for themselves into groups so that the sick could pray together and every day make an act of contrition together until priests could come to individually bring communion and administer sacramental confession. In 1349, more than half the priests of that diocese in England died of the plague, all while serving their people. One bishop in Italy kept a journal of stories about the plague in his diocese. This is one beautiful, powerful story. Permit me to read it, it's not that long. Quote, one night a man infected by the plague had been laid together with the corpses of others who had already died of the disease and was driven to a nearby cemetery near the plague hospital of St. George and thrown into a heap of corpses there. Then, according to custom, to wait until the following morning to be, to be blessed with the other dead before they are buried. But remember, the guy wasn't dead yet. When the next morning, the priest of the plague hospital of St. George was passing by with the holy sacrament of the altar on his way to visit dying patients in the village. And the miserable man, still alive, crawling among the dead corpses, caught sight of the priest. He raised himself up as far as he could upon his knees among the corpses. And in the ardent desire, if any way possible, to receive the celestial food, he appealed to the priest and asked him in a most beseeching and touching voice, saying, O oh, Father, for the sake of God, give me the most holy sacrament. Beyond these words, which were sufficient to prove how ardently he desired to comfort his soul with angelic food, he was, on account of his weakness, incapable of saying anything else. The love and devotion of the priest was so great that without hesitation the priest stopped and approached him in the pile of dead bodies in order to comfort him and grant his request. And when he now, with great devotion and respect, had received the most holy and consecrated host, the sick man lay down in the same place among the dead and expired immediately. End quote. Sadly, many critics of the church report that the clergy lived like nobles and avoided their ordained duties and, ordained, and the people they were ordained to serve. Yet, they don't report that most of the parish clergy, diocesan priests, and many of the religious and mendicants, religious friars were themselves from the lower class and easily identified themselves, not with the upper class, but rather with the farmers, the merchants, and ordinary city folk. When the plague hit, the people went to their clergy and their parish churches, knowing that they would receive good and holy care. The very fact that the crowds went in mass, pardon the pun, to their churches, shows that they knew when the chips were down, the clergy and the church will love us. History is very clear that priests, nuns, and monks were faithful and even heroic in discharging their office, even unto death. One example of their commitment to pastoral care is that parish churches and monasteries were also used as hospitals. The sick were turned away from civil authorities or the lords of the manor. However, the monks and nuns opened their doors and even invited the sick into their chapels, their refectories, their libraries, and their rooms. History also tells that some healthy people who would not come to a parish for Mass because the sick had been there in their pews. 
It records that clergy began a practice of standing on the front steps of the church to preach to the people or beginning hearing confessions out in open fields so that even the healthy would not fear the reality of encountering death and disease within the walls of their parish churches. How incredible. How incredible. Let me cite an example of Catholic clergy and funerals. This is a common one you'll often see in cartoons and in TV shows. The one of the most common images in movies or books about the clergy at the time of the plague is the bad clergies at funerals. Now remember, in medieval society, funerals were a big deal. The number of mourners in their social class spoke of the dead person's place in society. A special requiem mass was celebrated and the body was carried through the streets of the town as the church bells rang. Finally, the priest would bless the grave as the body was slowly lowered into its own resting place and people would wail and throw themselves on top of the grave, upset that their loved one had died. We've all seen that in movies and TV, right? Okay, good. Finally, the priest would bless the body and close with a prayer service. However, due to fear of catching the plague from a dead body, burials during the Black Plague became a quick and hasty affair. In some cities, such as Florence, civil leaders limited funeral attendance to only the immediate family. They forbid the ringing of church bells so that people in town wouldn't know if funeral was going on and people wouldn't join the procession. And mass graves are dug outside of the cities where people were quickly buried with no identification. In this way, funerals could be done quickly and without any ceremony. During the plague, the cost of funeral services became very expensive as people had to go to the black market to obtain the things you needed for a funeral. Supplies such as candles, caskets, stone cutters, and grave diggers. In fact, the cost of candles, good clothes to be buried in, and caskets became so outrageous that civil authorities in Florence actually had to fix prices on funeral homes and funeral objects. Interesting, huh? However, since the poor had no money, the poor couldn't afford these things, and the poor didn't have many funerals. Most public funerals during the plague belonged to who? The upper class. People who had money who could afford to secretly buy a nice casket, or candles, or have a nice procession, or slip a few bucks to somebody to show up and ring a bell so the city would know that someone important, or at least in their own mind, someone important had died. If a priest at a public funeral, many people deduced the priest was greedy. He was only helping the rich, not the poor. Priests and friars who did funerals for all the people. But since a noble's funeral was done in high fashion, people paid more attention to those funerals and became the talk of the towns. Rumors circulated that some clergy became rich from renting themselves out to do private funerals for the rich and powerful. In fact, cartoons of the day sometimes showed pictures of priests or monks carrying a cross or a candle with one hand with another hand out looking for a tip from the people who were having the funeral done. Although not the norm for the clergy, these sad images of greed and profiteering during the plague became very popular in literature. They became famous in one of the great books written during the plague, Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron, written in 1353, which later inspired Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, written in 1372. If you know Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, everyone on the trip tells a story, and certainly the friar and the priests are the butt of several jokes in the Canterbury Tales. Please remember these cartoons apply to a small minority of the clergy. However, it's important to remind you that such high mortality rates among the clergy testify to the truth that the priests did give their lives in faithful service, not to the rich, but to the poor, sick, and suffering without gain or reward. People often ask me, so that's the, that's the priests and nuns. How about the bishops? What did they do? They actually came from many of them noble blood. Did they run away like the nobles and the kings? Well, what did the bishops do to assist the sick? Why, I'm glad you asked. As a sign of their dedication to meet the pastoral needs of their diocese, many bishops actually took extraordinary actions to help the people of their diocese. Let me give you an example or two. As I said earlier in the 1300s, there were no seminaries. Clergy would live and study in the house of the local bishop or in the abbey with the abbot. St. Charles Barmeo, the Archbishop of Milan, created the first seminary system in 1566 that we know today. But back in the 1300s, once the bishop felt you had proven 
the capacity to live a holy life, and you learned enough Latin and theology to be able to celebrate the sacraments, he went ahead and ordained you. You graduated seminary. Sadly, many seminarians died of the plague before ordination because bishops and abbots actually suspended classes and sent them out to work in the streets or to work in areas where people were sick and dying. Many bishops actually jeopardized the future ordinations of their seminarians, knowing that people needed someone to pray with or to take care of them in a day in a shortage of doctors and nurses. Cathedral records show the Bishop of Lincoln, England, gave full faculties to all the priests to hear confessions and absolve sins anywhere at any time. This included the full power to forgive even those grave sins that were reserved to bishops alone for absolution. Now, I tell you that because in, in those days, some sins were so grave they reserved only to the bishop for absolution, and priests had limited canonical jurisdiction. If you ever know the way that priests vested in the Mass up until Vatican II, the bishop wore his stole straight down, whereas the priest wore his stole across, tied, if you will. That was symbolic of the bishop having full authority and full jurisdiction, and the priest having jurisdiction, but it was limited. The Bishop of Catania in Sicily likewise gave full powers of canon law in regards to the sacraments to all of his clergy, even the newly ordained, to ensure that no one in the diocese would die without the Eucharist, confession, or the last rites. In this time, it was common a priest would be ordained and then come back for periodic exams to maintain his faculties. Whew. Luckily, and today, once you get ordained, you're good. But in those days, you had to keep coming back every couple years to make sure you were keeping up on your theology. And in addition, if you had a special assignment, like teaching or working with a convent or working in a hospital, there would be special exams given. And yet the bishops waived all that to make sure every priest anywhere in the diocese could take care of everyone on a moment's notice in case of an emergency. In Germany, bishops gave special permission for priests to give Holy Communion to the sick and dying by placing the consecrated host on a long wooden spoon. The spoons were then to be washed or destroyed after its use. In this way, the sick would not infect the priest or the other people receiving Holy Communion at that time. To meet the demand for priests, some bishops ordained men to the priesthood quickly as soon as they had enough Latin and theology to say the Mass. However, the bishops only gave these priests permission to celebrate the Mass and give the last rites. They became known as simplex priests. In this way, these priests guaranteed that towns infected by the plague would still have access to the Eucharist and the last sacrament. Later, when a priest had more opportunity to study theology, he would pass exams and be granted faculties for confession and the other sacraments. These simplex priests were often sent to some of the most plague-filled areas to ensure that everyone would have access to the sacraments. Fourth topic, the state of the laity. Rather than giving up on God or the Catholic Church, the plague actually brought many people to the church seeking deeper faith. In some cases, the crisis actually brought deeper sanctity and more hope to live the faith and to serve others. Almost, although most lay people in Christendom did not have deep formal theological education at the time. Everyone lived their faith. Everyone talked about the faith. Everyone learned the faith. And everyone passed on the faith. Parents to children, teachers to children. The faith was alive and passed on, even if you didn't go to schools or universities to learn it. Well, we know faith is expressed in piety. It was during the time of the plague that new forms of piety arose among the lay people, seeking faith and perseverance. First, there was a greater devotion to the souls in purgatory. Artwork of the day often showed Mary or the saints reaching down to assist those who had died. This, great, this gave great hope to people who were losing loved ones and friends so quickly, to know that prayers were answered, and the church in heaven and the church on earth was truly providing for the needs of the church in purgatory. Second, processions with the blessed sacrament and relics of the saints increased. Since some people were scared to go into churches, especially those churches used as hospitals, outdoor liturgical processions were held. A bishop or a priest would walk through city streets where the homebound could open their windows and look out and pray and participate in the procession. The procession provided hope that our Lord or that saint would somehow be a special patron or bring intervention to the city in need. 
Third, in the past, many saints became popular for their purity, their professional trade, or shedding their blood as martyrs. However, during the plague, many saints received new devotion based upon stories of their healing miracles, their ability to raise the dead, or their service to the sick and the poor. Look at artwork of the saints during the 1300s, and you will see the images of saints doing miracles with the dead and also performing the corporal works of mercy. It was very clear to the people that sanctity and piety was being lived every day among them by people caring for the sick and the plague victims. Faith is expressed in new movements among the laity. The, the plague brought people together as their biological families or social circles died off. Many people found themselves in communities of prayer and service. Without taking vows or becoming religious, lay people would commit to live in one common household of prayer, either all male or all female. They would remain in the world and perform their regular secular jobs. However, in the community they lived in, they lived a schedule of daily prayer, mass, and setting aside time to care for the sick and the dying. One of the most famous new lay movements that was formed during the plague was called the Brothers of the Common Life. These laymen formed themselves into a group of people living in the same home, supporting each other in faith and holiness. They took a promise of chastity and a promise to perform acts of charity so long as they lived in this common household. Its founder was, known, was named Gerard Groot, and the most popular or famous members of the Brothers of the Common Life were Pope Adrian VI and another man named Thomas Akempis, who you may know is the author of The Imitation of Christ. The movements of laity and faith during the Black Plague led to the authorship of The Imitation of Christ. Think of that the next time you read that book. It's also interesting to point out the new role of military orders in the church. Catholic military orders were originally founded for the defense of Jerusalem against the Muslims and the protection of Christian pilgrims traveling to the Holy Land. At that time, these military orders consisted of consecrated men, kind of monks and soldiers. However, soon their work expanded to caring for the sick and suffering, especially as the Crusades left a whole string of refugees and people who were wounded by wars and disease. As the volume of serving the poor and the destitute expanded, consecrated women religious and lay people entered into the life and spirituality of these Catholic military orders. Many of these orders are known as hospitaller orders, for they took vows to always provide hospitality, food, shelter, and medical care, and compassion for anyone who came to them in need. The sovereign military hospitaller order of St. John of Jerusalem is known today, and more simply, as the Order of Malta. Another Catholic military order of the time were the Knights hospitaller of the Order of Lazarus, which was founded specifically to protect and help those suffering from leprosy and the plague, named after Lazarus in the Gospel story. These orders opened designated areas set up specifically for the care and the protection of the sick and dying who could not go to their homes or to civil institutions. These Catholic centers became known simply by the title of their knights, the Knights Hospitallers, or Hospitals, which is where our hospitals today get the title, Hospitals from the Catholic Knights and laity who provided these first Catholic centers. Sadly, and perhaps very interestingly, the most famous lay movement during the plague were the flagellants. You ever heard of them? Think of Monty Python movies and TV shows. <laughs> they began as a, a group of individuals performing self-imposed penance, but quickly it grew into groups of fanatics who roamed the countryside, going town to town, and they operated outside of the church and church authority. In fact, they were one of the groups condemned by Pope Clement VI in a bull issued on October 20th, 1349. The flagellants wore long white robes and pointed masks, looking something like KKK outfits in today's culture. They would blow trumpets or drum drums as they marched into large towns, announcing they were there, sometimes up to groups of 100 of them at a time. And then in front of large crowds, the people of the city would gather and the flagellants would announce that they were here to perform penance and atonement for all the sins of the people of that town. Congratulations. We're here to atone for you and for your sins and for the sins of all the plague victims in your town. 
In fact, they said God would accept their penances and provide peace and healing to their cities. Crowds who, who did not want to go into public places came out to see this. You didn't want to miss this show, right? So the flagellants would take off their hoods, take off the upper tops of their habits, strip down to the waist, and while quoting scripture or singing religious hymns, they begin to whip themselves and whip themselves and whip themselves, almost to the point of near death. Blood would squirt in every direction. People were horrified, especially children who watched this. Many of its leaders soon claimed that during the penances, they received divine and secret revelations from God. Some even claimed that by doing such penances, God told them they didn't have to go to Mass or confession anymore. This was more powerful than the sacraments of the Catholic Church. As you can imagine, the Pope and the priest didn't buy that. So, what happened? Many of the flagellants died, as you could rightly assume. Others, because they were condemned by the church, the people of the towns would not come and follow them. So, where did the saints come to at this time during the plague? If I'm going to talk about the state of the laity, let's go right to the good stuff. The cherry on the top. Were there saints during the plague? Because wait a minute, after all, most histories will tell you the church was corrupt or aloof or distant or that priests weren't celebrating the sacraments. Were there saints during the black plague? The answer is yes, amen, there were. And isn't that the measuring stick of the church to see does it bear fruit? Jesus said you'll tell a tree by its fruit, right? During the years of the plague, 1346 to 1353, the church produced many saints. And how blessed it was that as society struggled, the church produced saints. Let me share with you some of the saints living in the time of the plague that will show you the beauty of our Catholic faith. Blessed Claire of Rimini, an Italian poor Claire Franciscan nun who died of the plague in 1346. She was known for an extraordinary love of the sick and for those who showed up at the convent door, she embraced and welcomed with love. St. Flora of Belu, an Italian nun of the Order of Malta who died of the plague in 1347 while tending to the sick at her convent, which had become a hospital designated by the city for plague victims. Blessed Bernard Ptolemy, an Italian theologian and founder of a group of contemplative monks. However, when the plague hit his home of Siena, he led the monks out of the safety of the monastery and began tending to the sick on the street corners. He himself died of the plague in 1348, along with 82 members of his order, who left the safety of their monastery to tend for the sick and the dying. St. Francis of Perseo, a layman who enrolled as a member of the Third Order Franciscans. He lived a life of prayer and penance and died in Italy in 1350 while tending plague victims. Blessed John of Ruidi, an 18-year-old Augustinian monk who spent his free time collecting supplies for plague victims, and then with other friars, Augustinian monks, will go out and distribute them to the plague victims. He died of the plague in 1350. Blessed Agnes of Bavaria, the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, Louis IV, who renounced her royal title, entered the convent in Munich. She was a mystic known for teaching catechism to the poor and to those dying in hospices. She herself died of the plague in 1352. St. Conrad of Pienza. He was a hermit who later became a third order Franciscan. He worked many miracles among the sick, including feeding his home village in Sicily with one loaf of bread for several weeks until more food could arrive by merchant ship. He died helping plague victims in 1354. St. Roche, known to the French, or for you Italians, St. Rocco. He was a nobleman from France who gave away his wealth and went to Rome on a pilgrimage. Along the way, he stopped at villages across Europe, helping those dying of the plague. With a prayer or making the cross over their forehead, many plague victims were instantly cured. He was imprisoned several times on his journey to Rome because people learned he worked with plague victims and he was not allowed to talk to anybody else in the towns. Eventually, he himself died of the plague in 1356 alone with only a dog at his side to lick his wounds for comfort. He's often pictured exposing his leg with the black plague marks up and down his leg and a puppy at his feet. The dates of death are sometimes in conflict, 
But immediately he was known during the Black Plague as a saint sought for intercession for all those who were dying or giving care to the dying. St. Bridget of Sweden. She was a member of the royal family of Sweden with a husband and eight children. When her husband died very young, she went to Rome to pray and began having mystical experiences. She formed an order of religious sisters and served the plague victims in Rome. One of her eight children, born in 1332, just before the plague, is also a saint, St. Catherine of Sweden. One more saint to talk about, St. Catherine of Siena. She was born in 1347 at the height of the plague in Siena. You may not know this, but in, during her birth, she was one of twin girls whose twin sister died only moments after birth due to poor health conditions in Siena. Catherine would become a third-order Dominican, a mystic, a doctor of the church, and would endure the stigmata. Her greatest gift to the church was that she convinced the Pope to return from Avion, France, back home to the city of Rome. So, I come to my conclusion. We put the landing gear down and bring the plague to its rightful conclusion. Despite all the death and the worst ravages of the Black Plague, the Catholic Church and Christendom survived. In fact, from the darkness that engulfed Europe, a light shined bright in the lives of many saints and reformers in the Church. But most of the saints of this era will not be known in our lifetime. These numerous saints of the plague were unsung heroes, priests, nuns, parents, grandparents, married couples, lay people, doctors, nurses, and volunteers, all who gave their lives with faith and ultimate charity while living the gospel message. Whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did for me. Imagine all the holy men and women whose names are known only to God. One day we'll know them who because of their Catholic faith rolled up their sleeves and went to work, caring for not only the material, but also the spiritual lives of almost the entire continent of Europe. Despite her many human weaknesses and flaws, and the Catholic Church had many, the Church did make many saints during the plague. It kept parishes and abbeys open as a source both of the medicine of the sacraments and the medicine of doctors. When kings fled to hillsides and nobles closed their estate doors, the church opened more widely her doors to provide food, clothing, and care for the poor. When black market profiteers charged for funerals, the church provided sacraments and even seminarians to be grave diggers to make sure people were buried with all the sacraments. When civil governments fell apart and closed due to riots and unrest and revolutions, the Catholic Church opened hospitals, orphanages, and funeral homes. Many of these programs were funded directly by the Pope and the bishops, men often ridiculed or dismissed in popular books on history of the day. The Great Plague brought new and deep healing to the instability of the social order, the economy, or the political powers of Europe. Even though Europe had a rise in nationalism and a desire for new theological questions and new freedoms among the lower class, the papacy and the church provided a clear unity that kept families, cities, and people together. May this chapter of church history teach us to always know the truth of our Catholic faith. Our Catholic faith and church is very human, but thank God it's still divine and will remain divine and faithful to its mission. The years the Black Plague shows us that despite what you may hear or see on TV, the papacy and the church do make saints, and in the 1300s, it brought light to a world that was ravaged in darkness by the Black Plague. Amen. Father, can you say a word or two about how the plague came to an end? How did Europe recover? Uh, did the, the disease just burn itself out? Just a word or two about Europe recovering. And you are a physician, right? No. No? No, okay. Uh, last time a question was asked similarly, and that is the plague never really went out of existence. In fact, uh, sometimes they've found these mass burial graveyards from the 1300s, and as, as you may know, DNA remains in your bone marrow and in your teeth. And so it's been fascinating, and I I don't know anything about medicine. That was not my area of study. But 
by looking at that, they can actually find now samples of people who died of the bubonic plague in the 1300s and look at their DNA, well kept and in good condition, if you will, and compare it today to some of the diseases or viruses they have across the world, and they can see, if you will, a family tree. I think that's fascinating. Your, a quick answer to, uh, to your question, and that is uh, one problem Europe had was that during the main six years of the plague, the weather remained hot. And so bacteria continues to spread and breed in warm, warm weather. Once the weather changed after about a five-year break and winters became stronger in Europe, now we're worried about global warming now, back then it was global cooling, right? That that actually slowed down the plague. In addition, because the plague hit so hard, the population, many of which were weak or frail because, as I shared last time in the, the medieval times, that uh, sometimes the lower class, the farmers were not able to always produce enough crops. So a lot of the people who are sick or frail were not able to keep up. The disease was so hard. In addition to that, they didn't have medicine to solve it. So a large chunk of the population disappeared. And at the same time, the weather changed to slow down the plague. So what happened was, after about five or six years, the volume disappeared, although in the centuries that came later, there were still little pop-ups pop of it. And so in England, back in the time of Thomas More, it was called the sweating plague. There was some out of, out of nowhere for one summer. People got a horrible pneumonia and sweat, sweat, and, and you know, died. Or even in, in Italy, in Rome, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, plagues would hit just for the summer. And that's, in fact, where Aloysius Gonzaga was a seminarian who died helping plague victims because classes were canceled and they said, go out, roll up your sleeves, go to work. So the plague never really ended. There were conditions that hit society and nature that slowed it down and eventually suppressed it, but every once in a while it would pop up again. Father, could you make any sort of a connection uh, between the plague and the sources of the Protestant Revolution? Sure. Last time, the, the plague turned society upside down. Suddenly, in the feudal system, you had the upper class. Their job was to be rich, to have all the things, and to have the lower class work for them, but they were in turn to provide for all their needs. Well, once the plague hit, all the people in the upper class locked their doors and wouldn't care for the, the sick and dying, or else fled. And so now the lower class got upset because the upper class was not able to continue industry of selling crops or materials. And so basically there was famine going on during the Black Plague. Imagine that's a two-punch hit. And so as I said in my talk last week, there's actually uh, riots going on in Paris, London, and other cities. They're called bread riots. Would the government or someone give us food, give us medicine, do something? There was absolutely no care for the lower class. And eventually, they seized power in some places, or the ruling class, the civil people, start giving them, for example, uh, serfs who could not own property were now allowed to own property. Ah, that was good. Or they could be paid for their work rather than just getting a percentage of their crops at the end of the season. And so you begin to see a change in the socioeconomic, political you know, uh, life of Europe because of the Black Plague. Specifically, to Deacon Sabatino's question with the Protestant Revolution, the question was asked by some people, well, wait a minute. If people in power aren't serving my needs, who did they see in power? Not just the kings, but for some people it was the papacy or the bishops. What are they doing for us? You know, could we put our trust in all these leaders? Or rather, do we need to think local? We need to think people who think like us, who live in our village, our community. And so there was also a rise of nationalism at the time. Don't think of your time and don't put all your hopes on people who live across the mountains in a faraway city. Let's focus on here. And of course, when Martin Luther was starting to have his questions raised publicly, many of the people supporting him in Germany were pushing for German nationalism. They didn't want their money to be sent off to the Pope in Rome. They didn't want the Pope naming bishops locally in Germany. And so this upheaval in society at the time, the questions it asked, and also a new sense of freedom from, if you will, leadership, led to questions that would be a rise in local nationalism rather than seeing a universal church. So, Father, you didn't mention anything about the sacrament of marriage. How did that fare during the plague? Love always endures, right? <laughs> uh, the sacrament of marriage. Well, I said last week that 
there was a problem going on in the Black Plague because without marriage, in those days, there weren't a new generation of children. So you had the plague hit and just one-third or one-half of Europe wiped away without the usual replacement going on. So that's why you had such large numbers. Whole cities wiped out. In fact, last week when I talked about some of the eyewitnesses, there was a guy in England who was walking through England who looked and saw fields unkept, crops just growing, and animals wandering loose and no one to care for them. So, I mean, you sometimes on TV or movies see these movies, what would happen if suddenly all of society disappeared or a nuclear bomb or holocaust went off, you know, what would happen? What would the world be like without people? Well, in some parts of Europe, that was it. Also, if people were scared to go to public places, what were weddings? For most medieval villages, that was the big show, right? Because today, you go someplace else, meet the person you fall in love with, and you get married, and I'm there at the wedding rehearsal introducing family for the first time, because one's from New York, one's from LA, etc. In those days, you met some nice person in the village, your parents probably helped you, you signed the marriage contract, and boom, you got married. Well, that meant the whole village would show up for the wedding. But if there was a fear of the plague or people were sick or dying, you didn't meet publicly. So yes, marriage took a toll, not the sacrament of marriage, but the number of people seeking to get married at that time. Right after the plague, when the plague numbers get back, or I should say decline, there is something akin to what we call uh, you know, the baby boom. A lot of people get married and suddenly you have a lot more births. Right? Uh, one of the things that people often say about Pope Clement VI was he was aloof and unconcerned, and yet rather than spending money on his vineyards or other things that people joke about, he actually took the papal funds and spent them, as I said, on getting doctors and pharmacists, astrologers. That sounds funny. They didn't go and shake a magic eight ball or look at things like that. In those days, by reading the clouds and the sun patterns, you could sometimes predict when to plant crops or when floods would be coming, or when it was a good time uh, in, to do certain things. You also had people that he hired who were scientists who could begin to document and share knowledge. In fact, the Pope's personal physician in Avian wrote one of the first medical books, an eyewitness to the plague, and he, by observation, which of course is part of science, was able to be the first person that we can document to say, that there was a difference in the plague between bubonic plague, the type that comes from flea bites, and pneumonic, which is the type that when you get it, you then spread it through mucus, through coughing, through sneezing. So medical science was limited. In fact, last time we talked about plague doctors. Some of them would be hired as medical school dropouts or just people who needed a job trying to take care of them. And they would say, well, use leeches and frogs to solve. I mean, that was some science of the day. But at least the church, it spent money trying to take care of this. Also, I would add that many of the religious orders, like monks and nuns, they really, on the job training, learned a lot about the plague because they were the hospitals. They're the hospitals. I just had a quick question. Do we know what happened in Asia? You know, you were saying yes last week that it... Sure, someone else asked about Jerusalem or other parts of the world. You know, that's where it started. In fact, the Mongolians who brought the plague in a, a siege they were doing on an Italian fort had to leave because so many of their soldiers died. And so that's where the, the plague started from the Mongolian armies. They began catapulting their dead into the Italian fortress, trying to scare the Italians and trying to scare and spread the plague. In fact, one friend of mine is in the army says that in his army training, that was one of the first times they heard of chemical warfare or biological warfare, they catapulted corpses who were terminated. I would say that at least in Mongolia where the plague started, there were not as large cities. Remember that for most of Southern Asia, uh, Mongolia, Western Russia, they were large agrarian areas. Whereas you get to Paris, you get to Pisa, you get to Venice and Florence, Rome, those are just huge cities where people in those days were piled in without sanitation and therefore the rats and the plague spread. Father, you mentioned that uh, I believe it was the Rhone River that was consecrated to uh, accommodate corpses and stuff. Is that still consecrated today or can you unconsecrate it? As I said earlier, you know, the, the common practice was to be buried, to have a funeral mass and to have the funeral procession and 
that's what everyone wanted and what everyone expected. And the more prestige you gave to the funeral procession, the more a sign of respect the person had. Unfortunately, grave diggers dealing with dead bodies died very quickly. There weren't enough grave diggers. In addition to that, you might have someone one funeral a day. Imagine parish churches that might have to have 20 or 30 funerals a day. Or imagine how you, how you have mass graves. Remember the one story, 150 Franciscans being buried at once. What church or cemetery could handle that even today? You know, I, my parish has a lot of burials here at Fairfax Memorial Park. You know, we get spaced out by having maybe two or three burials a day because they have to have the staff and all the things that go with it. So they're overwhelmed. So bodies were actually sometimes burned. They were given mass graves or they're deposited in the river. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.